Hi, welcome to Haptic Feedback, podcast by Shaco. My name is Jamie Young. I'm the director of product design at Shaco, and I'm here with Nathan Stratton, the founder of Vocinity, a voice and video technology. And we're here to talk about voice and video interfaces. Thanks for being here, Nathan. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Nathan, would you mind doing a little intro? Tell us about you, your background, and Vocinity. Sure. Uh, so I'm a serial entrepreneur. Uh, Vicinity is actually my uh, sixth startup. Um, most of them have been in the internet service provider space, the voice over IP space, uh, software development, uh, and uh, most recently, uh, Vicinity focused on conversational uh, voice and video uh, interfaces for businesses. I'm Jamie Young. I'm the director of product design at Shaco. Um, mobile by design we are a tech consultancy we specialize in building custom software um, our core background is in mobile in the past several years we've branched out to be uh, less interface or more interface agnostic uh, so we're building more and more experiences across uh, voice emerging tech head mounted displays and things like that and we have a partnership uh, with vicinity which is awesome. In our conversation today, I want to kind of dig into voice, uh, product design for voice, when to use it, uh, what some of the exciting new technologies are, and kind of got no better expert than Nathan here. So I'm kind of curious, tell me about the kind of origin story for Vocinity. Like when, when and where did the idea come about and, and why now? I had the idea for Vocinity once uh, calling Amazon and in trying to get a package uh, routed to my house, instead of being greeted by Alexa, I was greeted by a Genesis 20-year-old IVR platform. And to me, that was surprising. I felt that somebody like Amazon uh, should be using conversational natural language uh, voice interfaces and felt that there was room in the space. If Amazon wasn't doing it, you know, possibly there were other businesses and, and digging deep, found that the chat bot space was very crowded. So there were literally thousands of companies that were building chat bots, uh, but building voice uh, chat bots or voice interfaces was uh, especially conversational that weren't just simply IVR, yes or no, or uh, responses that were pre-canned was uh, very rare. So uh, that was kind of the impetus for vicinity. And what, was your i'm always curious you know as a product designer what was your initial product development process like what, what, what was your mvp and how did you decide to actually jump in sure so we started actually um doing uh calls in the call verification space uh, so we had businesses who were uh things like verifying student loan applications uh, and insurance form applications, some basic stuff, making sure all that information was was handled correctly. Uh, and that was kind of what we got our feet wet with. Uh, and the nice thing about those initial customers is they were doing very high call volume. So literally we were able to do millions of calls uh, and kind of stress test our systems. Uh, from there, we also uh, kind of pivoted a little bit towards voice and video. Uh, because some of the early feedback was, you know, this is great, but I'm, I don't see anything on the screen. I, I just am talking to a, kind of a blind device, uh, and that kind of had us pivot more towards video uh, and voice. 
but uh, those are kind of the two major areas that we focus on today. Yeah, and I just realized, I don't, you know, if you maybe we uh, step back just a minute, can you talk, just uh, explain what kind of the core products of Vocinity are? Sure. So Vocinity builds conversational uh, voice and video uh, avatars. And those, uh, as far as target verticals, today we focus on verticals uh, in the healthcare space and the retail space. And um, there's a lot of other things that this is applicable to, obviously, uh, but those are two where we're getting the most traction uh, and, uh, you know, have, you know, paying customers today. Cool. And maybe you can just go into depth and tell us a little bit about those specific deployments in those verticals. I'm kind of curious to hear, like, what, what are some of the your, your marquee use cases? Sure. One of our first uh, trial customers was a exercise bike manufacturer uh, that was launched in some retail stores and needed a way because of COVID uh, to answer questions about the product. So pre-sales uh, type questions. And we uh, built a bot for them that allowed you to ask, you know, where was the product made and manufactured and what can you do with it and what colors does it come with and all of the things customers may ask about the product. Uh, and you could ask uh, a smart sign this information and it would interact with you. Uh, so that was kind of our er first early uh, entry into the retail space. On the healthcare space, uh, a lot of what our voice agents are providing is hold avoidance. So we interface into back office healthcare systems. They send us things like MPI number, date of birth, data service, all the things that are necessary to get through an IVR with a voice platform. And we pretend like we're a human essentially and go through the voice prompts and then wait on hold. And then after the call is picked up, we then transfer that to a agent that is asking for more information. Uh, these healthcare systems that we work with uh, don't uh, have any kind of button that you can press one to get a call back or wait in queue. And so this system saves them anywhere from 20 minutes to sometimes over an hour of hold time per call. That's very cool. And, and earlier you mentioned, you know, sort of chatbots alone uh, weren't necessarily doing it for you. And, uh, and you just said in your last question, about we kind of pretend to be human. Can you, uh, one of the earlier conversations, you introduced me to a concept, uh, which I was familiar with, but I didn't know the name of. Can you tell me about the uh, the uncanny valley and kind of where, you know, why, how the technology has developed such that, uh, you know, it works nowadays? Sure. So on both the voice side and on the video avatar side, uh, we do run into this uncanny valley. And that is the closer you get, to a human, um, the more um, fake or the more your, your body picks up, your mind picks up that this is not real. Uh, and that's actually a problem. And so, you know, one of the early things that we started working on is finding vendors and finding technology that allowed us to get past that um, robotic sound for a voice or uh, kind of max headroom movement for a video avatar um, so that uh, you could actually interact with something and it was as human uh, to your brain as possible. And one of the ways that we do that on the video side is by using pre-recorded video 
of actual human actors and then changing the lip uh, position and movements based on what the conversation we need to have is. And so you still get all of the body movement, you still get the hand movements, you still get all of that, uh, but your and your brain picks up that that is natural uh, versus if some of our competitors that are using fully synthetic uh, avatars, um, we feel it, it leaves people thinking that there's just something wrong or something off. Hey, cool. And I want to um, poke at that a little bit more because you, you sent me down a rabbit hole uh, last week with some of, some of the things you referenced. Uh, can you tell me about GAN, uh, like some of the technologies that are being used today? Can you tell me about GAN? Uh, I, I ended up stumbling into GPT-3 and kind of going down that rabbit hole for a while. Um, you know, you talked to me about some of the technologies that are actually making voice a really viable interface these days. Sure. So on the GAN side, um, that's more on the video uh, neural nets that uh, take a video that has already been created and are able to use data such as mouth positionings to uh, recreate that scene um, in an artificial way based on both synthetic data and real data uh, through a GAN. Um, GPT-3 is right now, I think, one of the leading um, NLU models that we have today. It's trained on literally billions of pieces of data from everything from Wikipedia to movie uh, scripts to uh, you know, what have you, anything that the humans have created over the last, you know, 50 years uh, and kind of compress that data into a model. And that helps us uh, be more lifelike when we're speaking. So we can keep track of things like context, uh, know when somebody has said, you know, that they are uh, their age or whether they're gender or any of this type of information, and then reference that and correlate it with other data that we're picking up later in the conversation uh, to, to offer a better experience to the end customer. You mentioned some of that. I mean, some of that sounds like pretty big technical lifts. And I know in the past we've talked about, I think uh, in a prior conversation, I was asking you, you know, like people have been talking about voices and next interface for 20, 30 years now at this point. And and you know, you, you told me, yeah, we're, we're we're finally getting there. Um, what are some of the hard problems that are still being tackled in the voice uh, and video assistant space? Sure, I think we are getting there. Um, it's been really a relatively recent time in history when we've had uh, models that have able to construct a human-sounding voice uh, from uh, data. Uh, it's been relatively recently that we've been able to take uh, a human speech and convert it to text and do it in a reliably uh, repeatable way. Um, as far as things that we still need to work on, uh, things like the models, like you mentioned GPT-3 on the NLU side, uh, making those models better uh, is challenging. Um, ASR, as far as speech to text on the voice side, is, you know, if you look to people like Google, you know, they, they claim, you know, they have 98, 99% accuracy. Well, you know, that's true for some speakers. Um, if you get, you know, kind of the middle of the road, you know, Iowans, you know, they, they probably have a great, you know, uh, 
track record. But if you get somebody in other areas of the country that have different accents and especially people who English may not be their primary language, uh, these models still struggle. Um, so that's another area that that we're we're working on. And I think there needs to be a lot more development uh, focused on uh, increasing the width of those models so that, you know, we can deal with the vast uh you know, differing population that is, you know, both the United States and really the rest of the world. Yeah. And that, that I know, you know, that kind of brushes into topics of, you know, accessibility uh, and inclusion, which is, you know, big topics right now. And obviously speech to text and text to speech have, have played a, a hard, a large part uh, in accessibility, especially for um, visually impaired people. Yeah, I, th I thought it was really fascinating to me when you um, kind of talked about regional dialects uh, as like one of the challenges. I, I hadn't necessarily considered that in the ASR space. Yeah, I, if I could come back to you talked about um, Google and their stats on on ASR, um, and I'm kind of I'm always curious about how much sort of the big tech is driving some of the interactions and conventions. Um, you know, versus uh, someone like technology like Vocinity, which is, um, you know, leveraging uh, your own technology alongside some open source technologies. Um, how, how much do you think that, you know, big tech will continue to drive the interactions? And, you know, for our part as a custom app developer, we're always put in this position where, you know, we're, you know, we're, enabled by the OS, but we're also sometimes um, had the OS becomes a constraint, you know, so we're for our part when we've done voice interactions in the past, you know, you're, you're asking your your home assistant like, hey, Google, tell my grocery store app to add this thing to a list. So there's always like a second or third uh, in an intermediary. Do you think do you have any kind of a you know, do you have any ideas like if and when like those kind of will big tech continue to be the gateway? Um, and, and do you anticipate sort of the, the voice interface sort of opening up at any point? Big tech uh, obviously has its place. Uh, if you look at things like language models like GPT-3, you know, I, I think the light, the stats that I saw are something like, you know, five million dollars just in computing time to run that model. Uh, you know, those are things that not a lot of companies can just decide to do for a research project. Uh, but but guys like Google and Facebook certainly can. Right. I mean, they, they have disposable uh, you know resources to be able to do some pretty big things. Um, if you look at what. Uh, big tech has done in the space as far as frameworks. If you look at things like TensorFlow and look at things like, um, you know, Pandas and just other natural language uh, toolkits, uh, they, they've done quite a bit of help that has been open source and in many ways given away. Um, I don't see a lot of innovation from big tech. Uh, it seems to be smaller companies that are able to put things together and move faster. Um, some of that is because they don't have the same constraints, right? If, if Google is doing something, they have to do it in 30 languages or they can't do it. 
Um, you know, vicinity has the ability to experiment in just English language technology and, and not worry about other parts of the world. Um, we, we support um, five languages today, but, you know, it, it, that's much smaller than somebody like a, a Google. So I, I think it's a mix. Um, and then you see the large companies um, either acquiring smaller companies to add that type of technology into their stack. Um, but the environment today has been one of um, big tech and small tech uh, innovating and providing different strengths that each one has uh, to, to deliver an end solution that I think is, is beneficial to customers. What would you say to anyone who is considering a voice application? When when is voice and video uh, the right interface? And when is it the right uh, extension of an application uh, or a brand or a particular problem? That's a great question. Um, I look at that from a couple different angles. There's some applications or situations that require it. If I'm driving, for example, texting is not an option um, in most states and certainly not safe. Um, so voice interfaces are great ways to uh, get something done that has to be done um, with, without taking your eyes off the road, for example. Um, there's other applications that need to leverage voice, as you touched on earlier, for accessibility. Um, not everybody can see text, uh, and voice interfaces are great for those situations as well. Um, voice interfaces also allow you to convey information in many ways faster than through a text interface. If I have to text on my phone something, uh, this interview, for example, uh, it's going to take me a lot more time to do it than just simply using my voice. And so as voice systems are more conversationally aware and able to understand the intricacies of what has been said and the way it's been said, uh, we're able to convey far, far more information than just a text situation alone. Uh, and then finally, I think that you have to look at generational uh, patterns as well. There are generations out there that frankly rather use voice as an interface than text. Um, there are generations that prefer video uh, over voice. Uh, if I talk to see my daughter walking around talking to her friends, she's got her iPhone held up like this, you know, FaceTiming them. Um, and, you know, they are very video focused and video centric. So it really depends on your demographic, depends on application, use case. Uh, but in general, I think that voice interfaces are going to really see an explosion over the next few years. The generational aspect is really interesting. Um... And you gave an example there and that, yeah, that really speaks to me a bunch. Do you, do you have kind of any insights into, um, you know, kind of a breakdown, I guess, you know, going from, let's say, boomers to X to Y to, you know, down to the, the kids nowadays? Do you, do you have any kind of uh, uh, insights and or predictions there? So that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think that um, we see kind of a, a curve uh, from our data that shows kind of younger generations um, preferring voice, and then on the other side, older generations preferring voice. Uh, whereas kind of in the middle, there's more of a text 
uh, people who grew up with email and are comfortable emailing. Uh, and then there are, are generations on either side of that that look at email as a legacy dinosaur and why would anyone do that? Um, so I, I think that that applies to voice interfaces as well, uh, that there's kind of these generational uh, curves on either side. Um, but in general, I think that we'll see more adoption across all generations as voice interfaces become more conversational. Uh, as people are starting to be able to not just say, you know, turn on your lights with your home assistant and they're able to actually have a conversation with your home assistant, it, it makes the whole uh, end goal of what you can get done much more rich and the type of applications much more rich. Uh, but there's there's a technology gap there that, that needs to be overcome. And I think that we will see significant progress there over the next couple of years. And you said something in the earlier response that um, kind of caught my attention. I think that that was really the ability to pick up on context. Um, and I, you know, for my part, I tend to think of, um, you know, uh, mature experiences being one that are anticipatory and kind of uh, right media, right time, uh, right prompts, right questions and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, and, and, and in that sense, you know, how, how close are we to, you know, a situation where, uh, you know, I, I make a request and it picks up sort of angst or irritation in my voice. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, how, how close are we to, uh, to uh, you know, a truly kind of anticipatory experience where it, it understands the context and it understands you. Yeah, um, I, I think we're we're getting there with some of the base frameworks. So if you look at what um, has been done in the space of sentiment analysis and not just text based sentiment analysis, but sentiment analysis based on voice waveforms, um, we are uh, getting to the point where we can detect uh, different moods and, and uh, different types of data uh, from voice waveforms uh, that can be useful towards that end. Um, if you look at things like on the language model side, um, GPT-3, for example, you can you know, type in a sentence and have it write an article for you. Um, so it, it's able to look at things that you may say, not just things that you've said already. Uh, part of the issue with uh, that on the NLP side uh, for real-time voice interfaces is a lot of these things take a lot of processing power. And being able to, in real time, not only pick up on my sentiment, but make predictions about what I'm going to say next uh, and be able to interact with that and make you know, affluences like, you know, uh, okay, um, that sounds interesting. And, you know, those kind of reactions um, is something that we're still working on. And, um, you know, kind of going on script here. Uh, some of the things that came to mind are what, um, what kind of role does sort of processing on chip have to play and that versus kind of cloud connection, you know, sort of we talk about edge computing and AI on the chip and, and things like that. Um, is that sort of part of your roadmap and infrastructure? Like how, how, how much is that processing um, starting to enable some, the technologies you're building? It's a great question. Uh, on the voice side, uh, we can do a lot of things today 
um, on our physical infrastructure. Um, so vicinity is a little unique in that uh, we are not based in a Google Cloud or an Amazon Cloud. We have our own racks of servers uh, in data centers uh, and, and run a lot of that our hardware ourselves uh, so that we can get the fastest chips, the fastest GPUs, that sort of thing. Um, so there are things that today that we run on our servers in real time uh, and are able to leverage them uh, effectively that way. Uh, and there are other technologies that really have to be done on GPU because they're kind of the next level more complex where you can't do it in real time on a CPU, but it, with a, uh, a GPU, you can. Uh, there are other technologies such as video uh, that are really on the edge of being able to do it in real time, but we're not there yet. So a lot of our video processing has to be batched ahead of time, and that can be done in the cloud, uh, but you know it, it is not something that can be generated real time on the fly yet, both on the edge uh, or on the cloud. It just there's there's that limitation. Um, as far as processing in in general, uh, there's there's a trend to move some of this more towards uh, the edge in voice processing. If you look at what Google has done with now building you know AI inference chips in their devices, uh, in whether they're handsets and the latest Pixel or other devices, uh, what uh, even Amazon has done with some of its Alexa with you know wake words and trying to answer some of that. Uh, on the device locally allows you to be more reactionary and more real time. Uh, if you look at the delays of, of going to a cloud and then coming back, you know, that adds up. Even with edge, if we had edge devices everywhere, uh, that, that still adds some, some delay. And so I think it's a balance between, you know, what can be done and what needs to be done at the edge uh, and what is uh, more economically to do in scale in a cloud. I'm going to kind of continue off uh, off script here and lob you a couple that I hope are kind of fun, but I'm sort of curious, what uh, what does voice and video look like in your life? Like I'm, I'm picturing, do you, do you have a house like that is completely automated with your own assistant at the front door? Like how, you know, what, how do you interact with technology in your day to day? So as a technologist, uh, this is what I live and breathe and do. So uh, my home automation system has over 1,200 individual uh, devices and sensors on it. Uh, everything from every light switch and circuit breaker. And Did you say you know, your, your home automation has 12? You have 1,200 different points? Like I do. Sensors? I do. <laughs> so um, I've got 21 tablets. Every room has a tablet that you can control everything from and, and all of that. So, you know, I eat a lot of the dog food that I preach um, and it's kind of a hobby for me. Um, as far as video, um, I don't have a lot of my day-to-day -day usage experience with video avatars. Most of it is voice driven, uh, but I certainly control my home with my voice uh, and uh, ask it questions on status with my voice. Uh, and all of all of that. My kids love it. It's one of the first things they show their friends when they when they when they you know come into our house is you know what they can do with their voice beyond what you can normally do with a Alexa or Google Home or one of those traditional assistants. Yeah. What what what's their kind of party trick and what what's your favorite sort of party trick? You have guests over. Um, I think that 
the kids like the uh, I, I have a lot of lights uh, that are built into the pool, uh, LED lights that change colors and being able to, with your voice, change those colors and set the mood of the pool. The kids really like um, I, I'm probably more old fashioned. I just like not getting out of bed to turn on the lights and, uh, you know, see what temperature it is in my office or in my server room or that kind of thing. So, um, wow, that's I, I could I could talk to you for half an hour about all what all those 1200 different pieces of touch uh, hardware are but um I, I was kind of curious about this one too like um this is more of a, a futurology kind of question but um but yeah in, in terms of personalization like what role it plays today and and in the future do you think that we'll have a situation where you can choose like I can have Michael Kane as my voice assistant um and and the part two to that question is like how how close does that get us to like to to some version of being immortalized? <laughs> you know, sure, like sure. Yeah. So that's a couple of questions. On the first one, um, the vicinity platform today keeps track of previous visits, so we do keep track of you know data that you've given us before, uh, and we can use that data to continue where we left off or start over again. Um, we allow people to pick the voices that they want to use. Uh, we use, you know, all of the major TTS vendors from, you know, Google, Amazon, IBM, Microsoft, uh, Synthesia, um, WellSaid. Um, and, you know, it, it gives us a pretty depth, a, a big depth of, of voices that we can pick. Um, on the uh, avatar side, being able to pick voices that are just famous actors or uh, personalities, um, you know, there are some legal and licensing issues that have to be worked out there. But as far as the technology, um, we're, we're pretty much there today. There are a number of vendors uh, that we have access to that we uh, clone voices with today. So um, we've done that with a couple of our customers. Um, but it's it's not something where you can you know upload your own clip primarily because of licensing and training that's required. Um, on your second question, there's people that have played around with that. Um, there's people that have claimed that they've you know kind of cloned uh, versions of themselves in AI. Um, you know, I, I haven't seen anything that's that's close to what I would consider uh, uh, that mark yet. Um, but, you know, we're certainly getting there. Uh, if you look at, you know, Moore's law and the number of transistors on a chip every 18 months, you know, and doubling, um, you know, we're moving forward in a pretty rapid clip. Um, and so I, I think that having the raw hardware processing capability to be able to do that is, is getting close uh, or closer, I should say. Yeah, I wanted to ask you a couple um, kind of practical questions. Um, in terms of deployment, you know, like how, how, what is kind of the process for Vocinity to integrate into a given ecosystem? Like, so let's say we want to give it, we want to integrate it into an existing, uh, native mobile application, or we want to deploy it on a kiosk in a store. You know what I mean? What, what is the integration process like? And, and you know, how heavy of a lift is that? Sure. So, uh, Vicinity is based its technology 
for last mile access on WebRTC. So very similar to the platform we're using today to have this conversation, uh, I'm doing it in a, in a web browser. Uh, I didn't have to download an application and, and you probably are as well. Um, and so WebRTC gives us that finally. Uh, it's taken some time, but we can, we can scan a QR code, for example, today with our app, with our solution and bring up uh, our uh, video avatar without having to download software. Having said that, if you do choose to embed it in an application uh, so that you don't have to scan a QR code, it's just part of the native application, uh, you can do that with WebRTC as well. Um, on the smart sign or totem side, um, you know, typically we do that through uh, software that's on a embedded kiosk device, usually Android, uh, but sometimes, you know, Windows CE or, you know, other type of, of, of device. Um, you know, our, most of the work that we do in creating a new solution is not around the access devices as much as interfacing with the third-party APIs that are necessary. So if we're doing a food ordering system, being able to interface with the POS system, be able to interface with uh, order entry, be able to interface with all of those back office uh, tools. And we find that our customer applications are so diverse that it's almost a new lift each time. Um, it's not like there's a one Salesforce integration that works for everybody in every application. And so there, there is some uh, you know, individual development work for each one of those use cases that uh, sometimes adds to the timeline. And the, you, you just kind of sparked your question to me too. I, I think a lot of the, from what I understand, a lot of the um, executions right now are consumer facing and a lot of uh, customer service facing or potentially ordering. Uh, have you gotten into more of the enterprise space and the back office space? Or are you actually deploying them there versus you know just taking in data on the front end, the customer facing side? Are you doing any sort of enterprise applications where you are interfacing with employees on the floor or uh, dashboard kind of things? Yes. Um, so. We do have two customers that we're doing that with today, uh, and these are systems that are voice uh, and video avatars uh, that are just used to ask uh, questions about uh, products that the store is selling. Uh, so that the you know one of the things that retail finds challenging today is keeping everybody up to speed on all of the uh, technology that they may be selling. And so they have questions internally about a phone or about a, you know, whatever it may be, uh, and they can ask our interface about that. So that's one. Uh, another one is on kind of employee onboarding um, to be able to uh, onboard those employees and get them trained uh, on a specific task. So, you know, those are the kind of the two enterprise type solutions that we've run into today. Very cool. And I think this can uh, probably be my last question, um, unless we we think of a couple others. But what uh, what's on the roadmap? What what's on your roadmap? What's coming down the the pipe the next couple of years for Vicinity? That's a good question. Um, you know, we are working to continue to improve the technology in some of the areas that we've talked about. So sentiment analysis, uh, gender detection, uh, those type of things are 
things that we have in beta right now that that we want to roll out in production. Um, being able to have higher resolution uh, video avatars. Uh, so today we're at 1080. We've had customers request 4K. Um, so you know that's you know increases dramatically the amount of processing that's required to be able to do that. Um, being more continued to push the envelope on being conversational by remembering not just what the last visit was and where you dropped off in the conversation, but remembering more personality information about you uh, so that we can use, and then using that in the conversation uh, are some areas that we're also working on. What does what your user testing and sort of feedback process look like internally? That's a great question. Uh, so when you're building voice interfaces, um, it requires a lot of testing. Uh, so typically the way the process works is we will divine, design an interface, um, plan it all out, build it, and uh, spend time on what's known as the happy path of how to direct the customer through to whatever the end goal is. Um, the bulk of the time is actually spent on navigating back to that happy path and dealing with all of the exceptions of what happens when someone curses at your bot? What happens when someone asks what the weather is in Topeka, Kansas? What happens when, you know, just all of these other things uh, to, to kind of get the, the conversation back on track to the happy path uh, is where we spend a lot more time on. Uh, we then usually push something out in a limited uh, beta environment where you have friendlies that are able to play with it. And those friendlies uh, can vary depending on, on the customer, uh, how big that group is, but getting real conversations of people, it's in very important when designing voice interfaces in particular to get people who had no input in the original design tested because you have assumptions on how it should work if you wrote it. And you tend to ask it questions that it can answer, uh, but real customers aren't like that. Uh, and so making sure you go through uh, that, that beta period of getting these friendlies to ask questions is very important. And then you do limited rollouts and uh, eventually full production rollouts. Yeah, that makes sense. Because uh, I, I know, um, you know, in the, the product design world, some of the early testing, I think, I think for, I think maybe Amazon did it with Alexa, but they, you know, the Wizard of Oz kind of testing that they did where they had a, a person talking to a a speaker in a room, but then on the on the other side of the glass was a person typing in the responses. Right, <laughs> you know, for the speaker to you know, they were right, right, kind of doing it in real time, uh, doing it live, so to speak. Sure, um, you know, and and they did that for the user testing. So that's what you know, figuring out how to do those experiments is uh, is, is something I'm. It is part of the art. By. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Well, um, I think this has been a really interesting and fascinating conversation. I'm glad that, um, you know, Shaka and Vocinity have this relationship and because it's really exciting technology, especially this, uh, you know, the pairing up of, of the voice and the video and, and understanding um, what, you know, our, our processing power and our te technology is, is starting to be able to enable that, you know, we've been dreaming of a long time. So. Yeah, thank you. Shaco has been a great partner. We've uh, really uh, enjoyed working with you guys and look forward to continuing to see new and interesting customer applications all the time. 
All right, well, I could talk about voice and video interfaces all day long, but that is all the time that we have. Nathan, thank you so much for your time and for being here. It was a great conversation. Thank you, it was my pleasure. Okay, well, I'm Jamie Young uh, with Shaco, and this is Haptic Feedback. Make sure to tune in next week.